Happy Friday and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast, except for those of you who might be owning some Twitter stock this morning and woke up to find that Elon Musk has decided maybe he's going to put the whole deal on hold, quote unquote, on hold, which not surprisingly caused Twitter stock to drop by about 20 percent as as of the time that we are recording this. Uh, uh, he's apparently concerned about the number of bots that there might be on Twitter that might affect the valuation. This, of course, has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that Tesla stock has lost about $400 billion in the last several days. I mean, <laughs> just so I on my newsletter, I went back. I, I felt like I was uh, doing a flashback to the 1990s and went back to the Drudge Report and all the headlines. Musk Twitter deal on hold, shares plunge, top execs quit. Uh, short seller, founder trolls, Tesla wipes $400 billion since acquisition plan. So so this is going pretty much about the way that we should have expected. Joining me on today's podcast, which is going to be jam-packed and should come with all kinds of trigger warnings, Professor Emeritus Tom Nichols. Good morning, Charlie. By the way, congratulations on the Emeritus thing, though. Thank you very much. It, it's an I, I am honored and good. Good on you for uh, sending out the trigger warning. Oh, yeah, there's gonna be a trigger warning. So I, I had an idea for your your last book was uh, the death of expertise. I just have a suggestion and it's and it's free. And maybe if you don't write it, I will write it. But you'd be better at it than me. I would call it the stupidity of brilliance. And just bear with me. Guys like Elon Musk, I'm willing to stipulate are brilliant in their field. But when they get out of their field, they are often profoundly stupid. And I was thinking about his comments the other day about how he's going to moderate content on Twitter. And his position seems to be, well, the First Amendment is going to be my standard. So if it's legal, I mean, I'm not going to have any other standard. That. And, it, and it, it occurred to me that he really hasn't thought about this for more than five minutes, and he has no idea what he's getting into, especially when you have the hate speech, uh, the cross burning, uh, the porn, uh, all of this junk that the government can't ban. But most private businesses would think not really a good business model for me. And I, I just don't think that he really has any idea what he's getting into, which doesn't mean he's not brilliant. But sometimes brilliant people can be really stupid because they don't know what they don't know. Are you following me? Are you making notes for the next book? No, I'm, 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 yeah, I'm stealing the idea and I'm writing it down. Okay. Um, what I was thinking actually while you were saying this is when you talk about him getting outside his field um, and getting into a field where he's really not very smart and that field is, you know, life, um, <laughs> you know, relationships with human beings yeah. and, and normal uh, people. Um, he's brilliant at what he's brilliant at, but it's a really narrow. And I think a lot of these guys end up proving that, that what they're really good at is a very narrow skill set. And, um, I'm just going to go all intellectual on you for a minute yeah. and say, there's this kind of famous metaphor about this foxes and hedgehogs oh, yeah. and, and foxes know many things. Hedgehogs know one thing and they know it really deeply and completely. And guys like Musk, and, and like most engineers, by the way, they're hedgehogs. They know their stuff, and they know it down to the molecular level. But then you say things like, you know, what should you do when you're getting on an elevator in a crowd? Mm -hmm. And they're like, I don't understand the parameters of this question. Should you chew with your mouth closed? I don't, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And so they are really kind of helpless outside that. And I think, you know, there is just this kind of weird 
and Zuckerberg has it too. And a lot of these other guys, they're just, they, they don't like function like normal human beings outside of their, um, outside of their specialists. It's like they, their alien masters haven't taught them how to mimic normal human behavior yet. And so they, you know, that, that's a lot with a lot of people. So unfortunately, we're living in an age of a political age of celebrities, billionaires and hedgehogs. Um, you know, a lot of these billionaires are kind of hedgehogs. They made their money and they decide, hey, um, because I have this one skill set, um, I should be a United States senator. Right. I'm good at everything. <laughs> I, I must be good at everything because everybody around me always tells me that I'm good at everything. And look, I succeeded at this. And how much different can that be? OK, so uh, I need your help on on this. The best story of the day. I mean, there's just kind of no the best political story of the day is this mega world meltdown going on in Pennsylvania. Oh, you know, yes. For the parameters of this, Trump has endorsed Dr. Oz, who is the you know huckster hedgehog, medical quack, whatever, who, who's running. It's it's a closed primary between him and McCormick, who's a normal human being who's decided to pretend to be maggot. And, and, and so everybody's been focused on, you know, them throwing shit at one another. And and suddenly everybody's realizing, I mean, so again, they, they've dumped tens of millions of dollars ripping each other down. And then suddenly everybody wakes up and finds out this third candidate, this up until now, until five minutes ago, obscure candidate named Kathy Barnett is surging in the polls and people are freaking out about it because, well, she's a little crazy. She's an oppo researcher's dream. And so now everybody is going, well, no, no, wait, 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 wait. She's too MAGA. She's too anti-gay. She's too all of these things. And so guys like Sean Hannity, who had built her up and kissed her up and said how wonderful she is are now going, no, 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 we need to stop her. Donald Trump actually put out a statement saying, hey, she's wonderful and all of this stuff, but there's no way she'd win this election. So, okay, I need this is where I need your help, Tom Nichols, former Jeopardy champ. So, Tom Nichols, analogies for $200. <laughs> the GOP and Kathy Barnett, it's like we grew the baby alligator in the bathtub and we didn't think it was going to grow and eat us. Okay. You know, like the guy that has the boa constrictor as a pet and then wakes up one morning and finds it strangling him. And let's not forget international relations metaphors, the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it is so interesting. Look, I mean, here's the problem with all you play with fucking fire, you get burned. And so these guys have been, hey, let's like throw your, what, what is, what is that one scene in the movie where the guys, you know, are, are playing with the, they, they go to a gas station and they're, and they're playing with the gasoline and everything. They're throwing it around. Zoolander. Oh, okay. great like, movie. One of the great movies of our time. And then of course, somebody lights a match and everybody blows up. I mean, these guys on the right in the MAGA world have been playing with kerosene and matches for so long. And it's like, oh shit, man, you, oh God, you know, this, this could, this could get out of hand. Really? <laughs> uh, say this stuff, uh, you know, it's all fun and games. It's a, if we're going to go for movies and I know we have some other movie references coming up, it's all fun and games until somebody gets shot in the leg yeah. from Armageddon. You know, it's a, it, it's funny until you start looking at the actual damage that's being done to the country. And, and <sighs> even within MAGA world, it's, you know, this was all a lark until we started, you know, putting kooks in that could actually hurt us and hurt our I would say our cause. They don't really have a cause. Their chances of getting elected. Um, but this is a throwback as well to I'm not a witch. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. This is 2010 again. Yes. Uh, the I'm not a witch for people who forget the, the Delaware primary. I'm not a witch. I'm just like you. No, no, you're not. 
So last night, Sean Hannity, who had actually built up Kathy Barnett and said how wonderful she was, the panic is not even disguised. Last night, Sean Hannity goes on to slam her attacks on Muslims. I want you to get your head around this. She's too, <laughs> she's too anti-Muslim. Huh. You guys are concerned about the crazy, but you're all in for Donald Trump. Okay. So, you know, she once claimed that Barack Obama is a Muslim, which is completely disqualifying as opposed to, I don't know, Donald Trump claiming that Barack Obama was born in Kenya. But let's leave that aside. News- Got to say, I didn't have Sean Hannity, defender of uh, Islam and Muslims, on my bingo card today after all these years of plumping for noted Islamophile Donald Trump. Oh, this is screwing up my entire bracket here. You know, I'm just getting started. I mean, news By the way, you're right? on the board for the first F-bomb today. I'm just going to point that out for the audience. So This is not a surprise. <laughs> So Newsmax, Greg Kelly, calls her a race card playing scammer. Hmm. Former oh Trump acting intelligence director Rick Grinnell called her unfit for office. Again, irony, beaten to death with hammers. Highlighting a 2015 tweet in which Barnett said that pedophilia is the cornerstone of Islam. So it's interesting. Did, didn't he call her, didn't I see some kind of Twitter uh, minor artillery exchange where then he called her, somebody plumping for her, a, a homophobe? Yeah, these, yeah. these people, these people sound like a meeting of the DSA now, you know, with um, you're a racist. Well, you're a homophobe. And suddenly they've rediscovered identity politics in a very personal way. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to just put this in the context. So, so here we have an entire political party enthralled to a guy who came down the golden escalator and talked about Mexican rapists and then said that he's calling for a complete and total ban on Muslims. And here's this woman over here in Pennsylvania who goes, yes, I think that Muslims are dangerous. Oh, whoa, wait, wait, where's this coming from? All lines here, people. (laughs) Yeah, well, um, remember that the most important qualification is not losing. They don't really care about any of this stuff. And I think that's one of the things, on a more serious note here, what it really tells you is it's perfectly okay to have all of these racist attitudes, as long as you're not going to parlay them into losing a seat. You can be a racist and a kook as long as you win. Then you're forgiven. There is no actual issue of principle here. That, yes. That's the part that's ma- that makes right. it really funny is suddenly, you know, all this throat clearing and harumphing about, well, you know, this person. No, this is th- th- that's all bullshit. Um, there that this is all about, you know, head counting. And and can we go back to Dr. Oz for a moment? I'm, oh, I'm sure. sorry, but, um, you know, the idea that we're sitting here in 2020, I mean, I've gotten used to everything, Charlie. I've, I have accepted that I had to spend four years, um, you know, as I, I know we're going to talk about this piece I wrote, but I mean, I, I feel like, you know, we crawled through the four years of the Shawshank sewer pipe that was the, the Trump administration, but I still cannot get my head around Dr. Oz, New Jersey resident, um, guy who I guess, what, a couple of years ago voted in the Turkish elections, now saying I'm actually going to be a U.S. senator from Pennsylvania. I can't, I'm, I just can't put my arms around any of this anymore. The world, I, I, I can't. I feel like I'm I feel like if I were working at Saturday Night Live, you know, if I were working at Weekend Update, you know, I'd just throw everything in the air and say, I, I quit. I, I, you know, all we can do is just read the news because you can't actually write this stuff. Yeah. And a couple of years from now, Tom, uh, we're going to look back at this year and go, hey, remember how naive we were back then? Remember when we thought that was the worst it could get? 
That's, oh my God. That's, that's, remember when people thought, you know, you were the edge of the right wing yeah, yeah. and, you know, and I was the sort of establishment, you know, stuff shirt, you know, I mean, just, it is the strangest realignment in politics in my lifetime, but it's gone beyond a realignment of ideology. It's just gotten silly. I mean, it's just gotten hallucinatory. Well, that's why I wanted to focus on this because it, it is silly. It is hallucinatory. Speaking of pop culture, I was going to hold this off for later because we're going to have a serious discussion about your piece in the Atlantic about Mark Esper and, and, and that whole question of when people should speak out. And, and I also want to talk about uh, Finland and Sweden, which I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated looking at the scope of history at, at the strategic non-genius of Vladimir Putin at the it's moment. Look, it is just incredible. It's just one of those things I do realize the kind of things you're hearing from Estonia and Finland and Sweden would have been absolutely unthinkable at one time. And hey, thank you, Vladimir Putin, for changing everything. So we're going to get to that serious discussion. But you and I have had an experience this week as old white guys. Oh, my God. Yes. Trying to give some advice to or at least pointing out to the Democrat. I'm look, I'm 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 pro-life. You're pro to our coalition right? partners. Yeah. yeah. OK. So but we again, we're, we're, we're coalition partners. And I want to make it clear. I, I consider myself pro-life. I'm going to continue to use the, the term pro-life. You are pro-choice. You've written eloquently about all of this, pointing out the strategic and tactical stupidity of much of what the Democrats are doing um, by not focusing on the areas of vulnerability. Their messaging is just awful. The tactics are much awful. And as coalition partners, I think you and I, you know, you know, ha having also gotten about a thousand tweets saying, you know, you guys are old white men, you should just shut the fuck up about all of this, <clears throat> you know, sit down, which, by the way, is a very persuasive argument. Yes, yeah, well, sit, sit down, <laughs> shut up. We don't want your vote. Well, exactly. Like, have you have you really thought this through? So before we just dive into this, speaking of pop culture, uh, you requested, Professor Emeritus, you requested this classic, iconic soundbite from Pulp Fiction. Jimmy, lead the way. Boys, get to work. Please would be nice. Come again? I said a please would be nice. Get it straight, Buster. I'm not here to say please. I'm here to tell you what to do. And if self-preservation is an instinct you possess, you better fucking do it and do it quick. Yep. I'm here to help. If my help's not appreciated, lots of luck, gentlemen. No, 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 Mr. Wolf. It ain't like that. Your help is definitely appreciated. Mr. Wolf, listen, I don't mean disrespect, okay? I respect you. I just don't like people barking orders at me. That's all. If I'm curt with you, it's because time is a factor. I think fast, I talk fast, and I need you guys to act fast if you want to get out of this. So pretty please, with sugar on top, clean the fucking car. Okay, so I, I have been living this for a week. You know, it's like, but Tom, people are hurting. They're angry. They're upset. And I keep saying, I understand that. I understand people are upset. I'm upset. Everyone's upset. But that's not a good reason to do things that are counterproductive. Look, if you want to get out of this, time is of the factor. If you want to get out of this, please, pretty please with sugar on top, clean the fucking car. And it just becomes this torrent of sit down, you don't understand, you know, you don't have a uterus. And it's like, look, this isn't therapy. This is politics. This isn't an affirmation session. This isn't a, you know, speak your truth moment. This is a political emergency that whether you are pro-life or pro-choice is going to have, first, it matters whether you're pro-life or pro-choice because the yeah. immediate issue is what are you going to do if Roe is 
repealed. And I have a thought about that that nobody's going to like in a moment. But the other is that this is going to motivate a lot of people to go to the polls. But is it going to motivate your people? Are you going to compound the danger of this problem where you row is going to be overturned and then you're going to lose the house and Senate on top of it. And instead of, you know, um, caterwauling at your allies, you know, a please would be nice. I don't like people barking orders at me. Look, just take the advice or not, but this, this is, this is actually not the time for emotion driven outcomes this is a time for ice cold strategy and the thing i was going to say about what comes next and part of the reason that i'm so pissed off is that for years i have been saying democrats i don't think abortion is going to be outlawed in america not not from coast to coast but if it is fought out state to state start paying attention to state and local elections because that's where you're going to have to duke it out. You're going to have to control state houses. You're going to have to make sure that you have secretaries of state who will actually do things like, you know, count votes. Um, you will have to have city councils and all of these. Th and the answer was always shut up. You know, nobody cares about that. We elected Obama twice. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton got three million more votes. That one always comes out of the woodwork as if that fucking matters you know, on and on and on until finally, I, I really do get to the point of saying, listen, I'm here to help. If my help's not wanted, gentlemen. Best of luck. I don't know what else to say at that point. And that, that clip keeps coming back into my head every time this torrent of anger comes out where all I'm saying is I don't disagree. In fact, I, I disagree with most of these folks less than you do, Charlie, because I think abortion should remain legal. Um, you know, but like you, I am staggered by the tremendous stupidity. And you know, it's funny, this, this, this stupidity of this Senate vote, this performative bullshit of let's go for the most extreme bill that we know has no chance instead of a bill that simply codifies Roe and working out from there. Um, it's even brought in people that normally I, I haven't seen comment on stuff like this. People like Ian Bremmer, um, you know, other folks out there kind of in the commentosphere, the, pun, the punditocracy, you know, whatever you want to call us, um, saying, what, what were you thinking? What, mm -hmm. is the, what was the point of this ridiculous vote that you knew you were going to lose on the most extreme version of a bill that couldn't pass? And I, I just find myself kind of staring at the newspapers and, and at my computer screen and saying, you know, am I crazy? What the hell is going on well, here? Well, let me try to put this as clearly as I can, because, you know, based on the comments, and the reaction I get, there are a lot of people who, you know, just think, I don't understand what you're talking about. Uh, you know, what's wrong with this? We, we put the Republicans on record. Look, the goal here was messaging. And you put your opponents on the defensive and you split them. Instead, Chuck Schumer managed to split his own caucus. No Republican is on the defensive about this. Now, there were obvious alternatives to the bill that he put up, which, by the way, did not codify Roe versus Wade. It went much beyond that. That's how he lost uh, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, probably also Joe Manchin. He could have put this Collins-Murkowski bill, which does actually codify Roe versus Wade up for a vote, and he would have gotten a bipartisan majority. It would have fallen short, but at least it would have split the, uh, the Republican caucus. He could have put Republicans on the defensive by forcing a vote on the exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. He could have cast the Republicans as extremists by proposing protections for the rights of women with 
ectopic pregnancies. I mean, they could have even forced a vote on codifying Griswold, which protects the right of contraception. Instead, instead of, you know, putting something that would be, you know, rather than appealing to your gettable colleagues, he put up a bill that was Mitch McConnell's messaging dream. And absolutely. I mean, the first thing I thought was, who wrote this? Mitch McConnell? But they've done this over and over and over again on issues like voting rights. Okay, so I'm I'm not really familiar with Dimitri Melhorn, but he was quoted in the Liberal Patriot, explaining why this messaging fumble matters so much. Let me just read it. It's a couple paragraphs. The fight about abortion is all about framing. Most Americans are in the middle. Republicans range from moderately pro-choice to hardline pro-life, but nobody really cared because Roe was the law of the land. The hardline pro-life position you know, in other words, did nothing to bother most voters because it was just theoretical. Democrats' historic track record in attacking people with even soft pro-life sympathies and then purging them from the caucus created this current moment of threat to women by helping associate Democrats with an extremely unpopular position rather than the safe, legal, and rare positioning, Bill Clinton's, that actually wins elections. Democrats are intensely skilled at allowing the GOP to get away with unpopular extremism by running to their own extreme. (sighs) And they followed this up, it's important to say, with talking points, I guess, from Planned Parenthood to the the caucus in Congress, to the the, um, the pro-choice caucus in in Congress that said, don't say safe, legal, and rare anymore. Uh, don't use the word, this is really the, the mind blower, don't use the word choice. Oh, you mean the word that has been the successful coalition rallying point for 50 years? Well, choice is not, and I guess there was all this turgid Soviet-like prose that it does not reflect the life experiences of black women and women of color in the struggle for, I mean, I can't, again, I read it and I thought, is there like a Republican mole at work here uh, making yeah. this stuff? This is incredible and compounding the error of that bill and then handing out these talking points that to the average person are going to sound, you know, leaden and ideological and, and dogmatic when all you have to do in, in this election is to peel off a couple of percentage points of people who are really concerned about this and many other issues framed as extremism, framed as the, you know, that the Republicans are just scarier than, uh, just as scary as they were in 2020. And I, I mean, it is just, it, it, the, the own goal, the cell phone, they are, they are at Putin levels of cell phones here. Okay, so in case people are not familiar with this, the pro-choice caucus just sent out, quote unquote, messaging materials to House Democrats on row and one of the recommendations was they they had a little chart harmful language and then helpful language harmful language choice helpful language decision so you're not supposed to say choice you're supposed to say decision <sighs> you're not wow. supposed to say safe legal and rare you're supposed to say safe legal and accessible you're not supposed to say unwanted pregnancy you're supposed to say unexpected pregnancy and apparently this comes from some of this planned parenthood stuff but Okay, so these are the the geniuses that brought us Latinx. Yeah. The folks who brought us Latinx, you know, joined their hive minds together to come up with this new set of words. And 
Liz Smith, I think, is, you know, she's a Democratic consultant that people know who she is. She ran Pete Buttigieg's campaign. She says, look, if this debate devolves into policing of terms like pro-choice, pro-life and safe, legal and rare, we will absolutely lose it. We cannot purify ourselves into oblivion on a majority issue like this. But it seems like our our side is doing everything to make that a reality. And all the Republicans have to do, and there's no guarantee that they will capitalize on this because this Republican Party, as we just talked about with people like Kathy Barnett, is completely nuts. But, you know, this is another one of these cases. And I used to say this to Democrats for years uh, back when I was a Republican. All the Republicans have to do to get elected is just get out of the way. Yeah. This is where this frustrating conversation always goes, which is, um, you know, you are going to... Because I think the way a lot of these folks who get mad at you and me, Charlie, they fire back and they say, well, you want us to appeal to Republicans. And my answer is, I know yours often is, is we get it. Republicans are not gettable votes for you. We're not going to convert anybody. All you have to do is not scare off two or three percent in the middle who otherwise would just stay home. They might come out and vote for you unless this to go back to the Iran-Iraq war, unless this becomes like the Iran-Iraq war, where they think both sides are so terrifying that they just say, you know, what's on TV? Well, well you know, I'm just going to go watch TV. I'm going to stay home. I'm not going to vote. Okay. Now, so I, I don't want to get pedantic, but uh, also this, now that there's the heavy breathing about, we shouldn't say choice, we should say decision. This is also what would gives me that that sort of, you know, facepalm moment, because, you know, obviously they workshopped this and decided that well, choice is not serious enough. There's not that big a difference between choice and decision, right? I mean, if if you have a decision to make, then you've already, I mean, I'm sorry, I just, have, you know have what I think every time I thought about this stuff or? Yes, they've thought about it too much. Every time I see something like this, I like, I looked at that chart that you were talking about. If people yeah. haven't seen it, I think they can find it in your Twitter timeline, but it's out there. I put out my um, news. Every, yeah. Every time I every time I see that chart, I think, wow, a bunch of people who went to graduate school were involved in this. And I think this is part of the and, and I'm being I'm not being facetious. I think part of the problem, and I know analysts and you know, guys like uh Roy Teixeira and um David Shore have really talked about this, that the Democratic Party, because it has become so top-heavy in its leadership with college graduates, and I don't say college graduate, I'm I'm a college graduate, Um, but that with college graduates who are inside that kind of college Democrats ideological bubble, they forget that normal American voters don't talk this way. They don't think this way. They they don't they didn't go to graduate school in, you know, the gendering of language. Um, all they, they, for 50 years, they have understood that one side thinks you should have a choice. The other side thinks you should not have a choice. Now it's like a decision. What, you know, what is that? How are you actually going to change course at the moment of ultimate peril for your goal here, your cause, and somehow say, let's take the thing that was working and toss that because a small committee of our comrades decided that this language was not appropriate to the life experiences of, you know, part of our coalition. It's totally sane if your life is a seminar room, but that's not how you win elections. Elections are won among normal, the normals, you know, somebody got mad at me for using that expression. What do you mean the normals? 
uh, people listening, the normals, people who do politics and who write and, and, you know, work in politics, the normals are people whose lives are not governed by politics every day. The people, the ordinary citizens who just go about their business, the people that you're trying to get to vote for you, who don't spend their day immersed in position papers and polls and things like that. And the Democrats just, the, the Democrats could be a natural majority in this country if they would stop scaring the normals. Well, and I, they, don't, it, I don't know how to get them to stop doing yeah, it. Well, and, and, and Reed Teixeira, who is a liberal Democrat, has been around forever, um, you know, is, is you know, c- continues to make this point. He's, you know, part of the problem here is the, uh, is, is the adamant refusal to pay attention to the actually existing opinions and values of actually existing American voters, as opposed to sitting around and saying, no, you, this is what you should believe. These are the words you should use. You shouldn't use that word. You should use this word. There are real people out there. And I think part of it is this, the fantasy that, that the future of politics is just, you know, you, and I'm reading from what he wrote in Liberal Patriot, you know, you're counting on this prairie fire of progressive turnout that you, you don't need to persuade anybody that you're just going to get your sort of, you know, mythical, you know, millions of unicorns who are going to turn out and vote. But the problem is, is that most elections right now are decided, the key elections are decided, you know, not in the plus 19 Democratic districts. They're not decided in California. They're decided, you know, in these areas where, frankly, there are real people who roll their eyes at this kind of shit. Okay, so. Tom. Well, and can we yeah, just yeah, say yeah. here, there are real Democrats who roll their eyes at this right. kind of shit, right. but they don't want to get mouth about it. And so they kind of just, you know, sort of take a deep breath. And I think, you know, before we leave this, I really want to hammer that point about the plus 19 districts and the reality here that all elections are national elections now. This is something I think that Democrats have not, in a way that Republicans understand in their bones. And, you know, somebody like J.D. Vance, who understood he could come from third place. Basically, he didn't have to give a shit about what goes on in Ohio. In fact, he had a town meeting at one point where he said, let's talk infrastructure. And all, and it was, it was, there was a report on this in the media where everybody walked in and said, no, no, let's talk about what was on Tucker Carlson last night. And Vance, he might be horrible as a person, but he's not stupid said, okay, I get it that, you know, this Ohio election is really about the kind of national MAGA tornado of bullshit. And so he jumped right into that. The Democrats don't understand that what you say, that when Cori Bush talks about birthing people, that shows up in an election where it's D plus one or R plus two, and it matters. They have no national messaging strategy, no message discipline whatsoever. And then they can't understand that that these elections are are being won and lost in places where their voters are not effectively distributed. And I think this is something, and I'll just get off the political science soapbox and tell to, to Democrats who are listening, you are a majority of the country, but you are not efficiently distributed throughout our federal system of government. You are a majority of the country. Right, Charlie, I heard that sign declaration. How many times have you tried to explain it, right? I know. You know, Hillary Clinton won an extra 3 million votes. Yes, mostly in California, which is great. California is our one of our beloved states of the union. Their votes matter just like everybody else. But in the in the federal system where we elect a president by electing a a majority of the states. 
winning an extra 3 million votes in California or New York or Florida or wherever, you have to spread that win efficiently throughout the rest of the Electoral College. And even in congressional districts, because you know, the minute you and I talk about this, people will scream about gerrymandering, which happens. Voter suppression happens. But those are meant to affect marginal elections. They are not meant to affect big turnout election. Those are meant to affect an election where it's, you know, one point difference. And when you've got young people still voting down in the in the 20s and 30s and 40s, they got up to 50% of the vote in 2020 of their available vote. And we thought that was like a miracle. Um, when you have turnout constantly falling in the off years, uh, you know, you just can't keep complaining that somehow you're being cheated out of these elections. Bad messaging, low turnout, ineffective distribution of your votes. And one last point, spending money stupidly. Stop seeing if you can knock Mitch McConnell off in Kentucky with a hundred zillion dollars. Spend that money electing secretary of states in the Midwest. Send that money to state representatives, state legislative candidates, whose, whose entire budget is a credit card at Staples to do their copying. Help those people out instead of trying to dump money into knocking off, you know, completely invulnerable guys like Mitch McConnell. But, you know, once again, we're going to get yelled at for not understanding the emotion and the anger and the depth of feeling. And once again, I'm going to say here to help gentlemen or helps not appreciated. Good luck. <laughs> okay. <sighs> I did that all without taking a breath. I, I know. I, I, I kind of want to spike the football here, but I want to hear what you had to say about uh, Mark Esper as well. And I also want to talk about this amazing story about Sweden and Finland. So let's do that right after this. Do you hate hearing ads? If so, I've got a solution for you. Join Bulwark Plus, where members enjoy ad-free editions of this show and all the podcasts in our Bulwark network, like Beg to Differ with Mona Charon and The Focus Group with Sarah Longwell. There's also the member-only podcast, The Secret Show, and The Next Level with Tim Miller. You can give a Bulwark Plus membership a try for the next 30 days for free. Simply go to thebulwark.com slash charlie to claim your free trial today. This offer is exclusively for listeners of this podcast, The Bulwark Podcast. That is thebulwark.com slash charlie. All right, we are back with Tom Nichols. And look, the, the flogging is going to continue in, until morale improves, just for people who <laughs> are wondering why we're going to keep talking about this. So I, I have obviously very mixed feelings about, uh, you, you know, reading the the Mark Esper stories, the former Secretary of Defense, who's out with a book where that seems to be the, the new meme. You know, so-and-so waited until they had a book to tell us how horrible uh, the Trump administration was and how close we came to some sort of political Armageddon. So you had a piece in The Atlantic, though, where you, you, you kind of came up with a standard for when to speak out. Uh, and and to, so just tell me a little bit about maybe... I mean, number one, Mark Esper has spoken out. He didn't speak out earlier. Uh, he also didn't speak out when he was in office because he thought that he would get fired. And I don't know, Judge Jeanine would be put in charge of the Department of Defense uh, if, if he did. So g give me your standard. Give me your take on this. Uh, well, and I'll just um, uh, some shameless self-promotion. It was yeah. a piece in my um, newsletter at The Atlantic called Peacefield, which you should all subscribe which to. Outstanding, which I do subscribe to. Uh and, you know, 
I, I said, Mark Esper, I, you know, when I was, I'm an, an emeritus now, but when I was a professor, I was working in the DOD at a military institution. And, you know, Mark Esper wasn't my favorite secretary of state, but as I said, one more TV reference, like Chernobyl, he was that line from Chernobyl, not great, not terrible, but the thing he did right. And I think that we do have to give him, you know, credit for honorable service is that he was body blocking all kinds of crazy shit going on yeah. in the Trump administration. And that led me to say, look, you know, the people who constantly like the people did this to Deborah Burks as well, saying she should just resign. She should just walk out and resign. I think, you know, with with especially in the national security arena, people like Esper, their argument that the people who will come after me are worse is a legitimate argument. Yeah. And who came after Esper? A hack, a nobody named Chris Miller, who, you know, most people, if you ask them who was secretary of defense after Esper, they wouldn't be able to come up with the name. And that's, that was the point. Miller was supposed to be the acting secretary of defense who was supposed to fly around on a plane and stay out of the way while Cash Patel, you know, and all these other guys were texting and sending emails and basically trying to help Trump stay in office. So my, my answer to all this was, look, I think in a lot of positions, resignation, especially if you think it's not going to get much worse or much better, you can't keep selling your soul. That's fine. But for a guy like Esper, I totally get why he didn't just, as they say in the military, why he didn't just throw his stars on the desk. You know, generals no. don't do that either. Right. It's very hard. You know, used to teach civil military relations, talking about, you know, guys in Vietnam, right? You know, generals saying, I'm, I can't just walk into LBJ and say, go fuck yourself. You're right. Because I've got, I've got men under me, guys in the field. It's 1960s. There's a Cold War. I can't just throw my stars and say, I'm going to, I'm going to Disney. Fuck you. You know, people of principle don't do that. On the other hand, people of principle also don't wait until they have a book deal to tell us that the president is unhinged, that the president is a danger to the country, that the president wants to shoot missiles into Mexico, um, that the president wants to shoot unarmed protesters, that there is a plot afoot to subvert the Constitution. And I think that's where I really draw the line that if what, you know, if you resign or you're fired in the case of Vesper, you know, a week later, I think it's okay to say, look, I understand I've been fired. I stayed as long as I could to prevent the damage I could. Now that I'm out, I'm released from my obligation to this administration. And I feel the need to say the reason I stayed is that you people need to know a bunch of stuff. And you say that a week after you're out, not 18 months after you're out, not after you have a book deal and you're trying not to steal the thunder from release week. And think of all the people, Charlie, that we haven't gotten a full, some, some guy on Twitter gave me hell about, well, you know, Jim Mattis spoke out. Yes. Jim Mattis was highly critical. I'm very aware of what Jim Mattis said because he said it in the magazine I worked for. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, Jim Mattis has never given a full accounting of what happened inside the Trump. We know more from Mark Esper than we do from Jim Mattis. John Kelly has never really told us things we need to know about what happened inside that White House. And while, especially now, while Congress is investigating what happened, these guys are just sitting back and keeping their heads down and saying, don't subpoena me. There's a time to step forward and say, I, this is a grave time for the for the republic. This is a time for me to... And you know what? You could even do it, let me just say, to my 
former Republican colleagues. You could even do it in the spirit of party loyalty if you really wanted to. Look, the Republican Party needs to know these are the people who were subverting the Constitution. This is stuff that happened, but they don't do it. And, and they, you know, the, the people that waited until they had book deals, John Bolton, Mark Esper, many others, and the people who have never spoken out and told us what they really know, Kelly, McMaster, Mattis. I mean, it's really, I, I really think that there is a failure of a duty to speak out there. Well, I, I want to put an exclamation point on this because there was a time when I really do think that they had a duty to speak out, which was during the impeachment proceedings that took place in 2021. And this is tremendous consequences because yes. what they're all saying is that it would be an absolute disaster for the country and a threat to national security if Donald Trump ever returns to the Oval Office. And yet their silence makes that more likely because they failed to come forward at a time when the American system was processing all of this. And when there was a moment at which he could have been held accountable for his behavior, um, as a result of the failure of accountability, uh, he is not disqualified from running for office. And uh, he's going to be the Republican nominee, I think, more, more likely than, than not. And given everything that's happening, uh, it's a real possibility. So your, your point about impeachment is really important, Charlie, the second one, because, you know, you could say, well, look, the election was already over. Esper was fired after the election. Right. But Kelly, Mattis, Esper, Burks, um, you know, um, you name it, all of these people could have gotten together during the impeachment and said, this is a moment where the American people are trying to decide whether Donald Trump should be prohibited from ever running for office again. That would be the only, if Trump had been impeached the second time and right. convicted, the only consequence would have been to prevent him from running for office again. And all the people who said he must never be allowed in the Oval Office again, all kept their traps shut during the one moment that the American nation was debating whether or not to allow him back into the Oval Office ever. Right. And I'm sorry, there is no duty of confidentiality, no executive privilege, you know, nothing that supersedes that when that they should have come forward and if Congress didn't want to hear from them, they could have held a press conference and they said, we are all here as Trump's former national security team, his former COVID team, his former economic team, his White House staff. There's a dozen of us standing here. We're here to tell you this is the most dangerous person we've ever seen. And yes, we understand we worked for him because we did our best to prevent disasters every day and let us tell you what they were. If and you're just willing, do it. Yeah, and if you're willing to go on cable television shows uh, and radio shows and give newspaper interviews saying this, why were you not willing to share that with the Congress of the United States when they were making this monumental decision? And that's where I think it becomes unforgivable. I, I agree. And I think I think the um, you know, the teasing of these stories, you know, we'll be right back. There's a bombshell coming. I know. No, I'm sorry. This is not this is not um commercial television. This is your duty to the country and the constitution. And, uh, you know, I, while I can honor the, 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 I said at the end of the piece, I cannot imagine the pressure, what it would feel like on my shoulders to know that we're basically living through night of Camp David, you know, that the president is unhinged, that he wants to do illegal and dangerous and unconstitutional things. But there comes a time where if you want that position of responsibility, then you need to honor the requisite level of, of loyalty to the constitution that that requires and to step forward. And, and they didn't. And, 
that's, and I think part of the reason we're in the jam we're in now is because the, I, I just want to say, Charlie, I think the other reason is that the public needs a narrative that is more than, you know, John Kelly saying, boy, I didn't really like that guy. Right. They need to be grabbed by the lapels. The president was going, I am a Republican, you know, I am a Republican Trump appointee. <sighs> Listen to me. He was going to shoot unarmed protesters. Now ask me anything, you know, and instead they kind of, and then, and then of course you get this, this absolute bullshit from guys like Barr. Well, uh, you know, he's a terrible president. He's terrible. I told him he was full of shit and people hated him. Well, of course I'd vote for him again. I don't yeah. think he should be the nominee, but if he's the nominee, what are you going to do? Because apparently they feel that that's required. So let's leave it at that high point and let's start our weekend. We both have earned it. <laughs> Tom Nichols, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Thank you, Charlie. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Kitty Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.